You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 1st of June 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. But most of all, Lord, thank you for making America great again. Mom, no! It's okay, Darlene. The ongoing Roseanne Barr brouhaha, probably entitled by now to its own gate suffix. My guests Ben Ryland, Daphne Carnesis and Fernando Augusto Pacheco will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including new governments in Spain and Italy, Arabian media's uncertainty about reflecting Saudi Arabia's reforms, and our panel's favourite soap opera and other fictional villains. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocles Ben Ryland, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Daphne Carnesis. Welcome all. We will start in Europe, where in contrasting scenarios, which looked pretty unlikely as recently as this time last week, Italy turns out to have a government after all and Spain doesn't, or at least not the same one it had this time last week. In Italy, the unlikely far-left slash far-right coalition of Five Star and Lega has been sworn in with its original choice of Prime Minister, the obscure then famous then obscure and now famous famous again law professor Giuseppe Conte. In Spain, Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy has been unhorsed by a motion of no confidence in Parliament. Um, Daphne, first of all, in Italy, uh, this Conte was done 48 hours ago, consigned to uh, obscurity as a a pub quiz answer, as as not even Italy's shorter serving Prime Minister. Um, Does it turn out that President Mattarella may have known what he was doing after all? Uh, I'd say yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, he has succeeded in blocking the Eurosceptic Paolo Savona from being a finance minister. Of course, he is back as uh, European Affairs uh, Minister in, in this uh, new government. Uh, but firstly, as you said, the fact that Giuseppe Conte is back, he was the preferred candidate for you know both uh, of the parties. So that's good. On the other hand, uh, obviously, this is the first sort of uh, populist coalition to be had uh, by a founding EU member. Uh, so this isn't great for the psychology of the Eurozone at all. Um, um, and, you know, fears remain uh, as to Italy's place in the Eurozone. Uh, ben, has Mattarella at least asserted that he is going to, uh, how to put it, impose a measure of adult supervision here? Because that was a pretty massive elbow he threw uh, in blocking their choice of finance minister, potentially at the risk of, of an election. He has he has laid down a marker, hasn't he? He has. He's at least given the illusion that someone is in control in Italy and I suppose that might be uh, that, might, that might be giving a lot of people some degree of confidence or at least uh, allowing them to rest, knowing that, that there is some, some sort of coordination happening uh, at the top level in Italy. But I think once you dig a little deeper beyond that most things still have a massive question mark over their heads. Uh, I think um, with just a few days ago, as you were saying, Andrew, it all looked very, very chaotic, and I'm sure it is still very chaotic. My mother-in-law uh, telephoned the other night, and, and she's she lives just outside, uh, just outside of Naples, and she, I mean, she was quite. Uh, saddened, I suppose, about how ridiculous everything had become. I think uh, there are, there is a big problem initially, I think, a, a very deep-rooted problem with a lot of people having massive distrust in their institutions, in their elected representatives, and just in, in government in general. 
And even if this this government does manage to get control over something, I think it's going to take much, much more to give people that confidence back and believe that politics can be a force for good and and something that they can rely on. That that degree of trust is simply not there in Italy at all at the moment. Fernando, how much are you willing to bet on this coalition lasting terrifically long? I mean, it, it is, when I described it as unlikely, that was, I'm going to go ahead and call that an audacious understatement. Well, and let's remember Italy had 64 governments since the end of World War II, so it wouldn't be a big surprise. You're, you're I, saying one more won't make any difference. Exactly, but I, <laughs> but I don't, but I think it will survive maybe for at least let me guess, four to six months at least, because I think if there will be another election, the result will be pretty similar or e- even worse in terms of, I think the populist parties might even win actually a, you know, a proper majority. I don't see the Democratic Party or Forza Italia doing better than what they did uh, in the election. So I, I think at least for a few months they will have to you know, see what they can do. But I mean, yeah, I'm not betting anything. Is it not the case though, and I shall, I shall put this to you, Daphne, that we are now, or at least Italy is now embarked on what is potentially the most dangerous part of any populist experiment because most populist experiments burn out. They don't really go anywhere. They never end up in charge of anything, usually because the people actually involved in running them uh, tend to be a mixture of the incompetent and the insane. But what happens once they get into power and the people who voted them realise actually they haven't solved all my problems, my life is actually either much the same as it was or it's got appreciably worse, what doesn't happen is that the people who voted for them they go ah well my mistake i've learned from that they just get angrier and angrier exactly and and i mean looking to the example of greece for example uh, when everything was going on with grexit and then you know we saw basically a u-turn from the government which by the way it, it's quite interesting because it's also a coalition government with uh, the left-wing syriza party and the far-right uh, independent greeks uh, in that case it has worked out until now that has more or less held together hasn't it, it has held together exactly uh, i think because they were sort of united on their you know anti-austerity aims and so i think having a common some common ground even if you are left wing and right wing obviously helps the coalition stick together but you're right i mean people aren't going to be happy when uh you know when i say well if uh, there is a u-turn from this coalition in terms of their, their pledges really uh, we should look uh, ben also at spain where the new prime minister is the the former opposition leader leader of the socialist party pedro sanchez uh, should he call an early election he's in quite a weird position in that he has been ushered into power not uh, by the people and he's not actually a member of parliament it's a very tricky situation and andrew i'm sure you'll recall what happened uh, a number of times in australia when you have a, a government uh, that isn't necessarily uh, directly elected or at least a leader not directly elected by the people it can be difficult to convince people of your mandate. And that can be a problem. But then again, you have to, from a, from a political perspective, you have to judge whether it would be more expedient for you to call an early election and maintain that mandate, or at least or, get that mandate. Which you might not. Exactly. Or, <laughs> or give yourself some time to convince people as to why you should actually deserve to be in that job. And that's, that's really a, a political question. But in cases like this, I think it's important for people to remember that, generally speaking, you don't vote for one individual, do you? You vote for a party. Yeah, I'm not sure how many people see it like that, though, in well, parliamentary yeah. democracies. Exactly. I'm not sure that anyone really sees it like that anymore at all. It used to be the case. I, I feel like 
at least in Australia, it used to be the case where people really did believe in the party. But in recent years, it does feel as though personality politics has taken over and that that can cause problems like this. Uh, Fernando, was it reasonable to uh, unload Rajoy over this corruption scandal? It does involve his party and it involves some very senior figures in his party. And indeed, one of his former treasurers is going away for 33 years. I mean... It- which is a fairly undignified look, even if he had nothing to do with it and knew nothing about it. Should he just have quit? Of course. I mean, he should have done because, you know, we knew about those corruption scandals for a while. Uh, you know, it was not a surprise for anyone. But, you know, for some reason, Rajoy managed, you know, to keep, uh, to, to be in power. I was very surprised that he managed to survive for so long. And it's interesting about Pedro Sanchez as well. I think he would be a very weak leader because, let's be honest, the socialists are not doing that well. Even their kind of allies, Podemos, a little bit. They don't have a great relationship, so it's very fragile as well. And if I would be Pedro, I would be calling uh, election at least by the end of the year as well. Okay, well, let's look now at the United States, the president of which is presently attempting to engage the country in a singularly fat-headed discussion of what constitutes proper language among television comedians. Following the dismissal of Roseanne Barr by ABC for the tweeting of obnoxious racist conspiracist idiocy, President Trump is now arguing for similar sanction to be imposed upon Samantha B, who called his daughter a name he has himself reportedly called other women on occasions several. Trump, in both cases, has been at pains to make it clear that in this row about the use of racist and misogynist terminology, the real victim is a white man, i.e. him. Um, ben, first of all, the case they are trying to make against Samantha B, um, who has apologised, but there again, so did Roseanne Barr, are, are, is it comparable? No, of course it's not comparable. And and I know that we express disbelief about the President of the United States roughly once an hour. Uh, I... That's a slow hour, actually, if it's just the once. <laughs> I have to say that that it's, it is absolutely astonishing that we are at this position where we've got someone in such a powerful position who doesn't, simply does not or absolutely refuses to have any grip whatsoever on what the concept of racism actually is. And the fact that he's got up on television, uh, or at least got got on his uh, Twitter feed, and, uh, and has tried to uh, have some sort of opinion in this argument without saying anything. Without even without even approaching the comment that Roseanne actually made, the the whole comment that st- that sparked this whole issue, he's not actually uh, assessed that. He's not said anything about it whatsoever. He's the president. He's supposed to do this. That's like that's one of the most basic parts about his job, and he's utterly refused to do it. If if every other massive massive mistake that he's made has not proven that he's not fit to be president, this. This one certainly, certainly does. I mean, Daphne, is the fact that people, us obviously not excluded, are even talking about this actually kind of a victory for Trump? Because this is the national and because he's the president of the United States international discourse operating at his fairly elementary level, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, in a way, every time that we, uh, you know, utter his name or analyse what he's doing is kind of a victory for him because that's what he wants. He wants to be the focus of attention. We've we've talked about this. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, in this case, um, I think it, in a way it is something that um, does in a way play into his hands. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, Fernando, what do you think? I mean, is this even a thing that, I mean, (laughs) presidents of the United States and senior politicians do comment on things occurring in the culture, and and so they should. They are national leaders, and it is a national conversation. But 
he's obsessed with it to a genuinely peculiar degree. Yeah, it's very weird. And I, mean, I agree. I mean, he can comment on whatever he wants. But I also agree with Ben because I think they're very different things, you know, Samantha B and Roseanne's case. And I read a quote that, you know, I actually, I think this is very easy to understand. Calling someone a racist is not as offensive as someone who is a racist himself, you know. So she said a crass name. I'm not saying what she did. I actually think it was, was a bad word. I'm not saying, hey, congratulations, Samantha B. But, you know, it's different from from what Roseanne says and the meanings. I think, you know, we, we shouldn't even compare both cases like Trump is trying to say. And I think ABC should just stand stand for Samantha Bean say, and say, why is it different? And Andrew, I, I just have to, I think I need to, to jump in on that. Uh, that that idea that because we're talking about Trump, it's somehow a good thing. I really don't think that's the case here at all. Part of the success of Roseanne, the sitcom, was uh, part of the success of, of Trump, the president. You know, this the fact that, that Roseanne could come back after 20 years of not being on air and somehow be the, the highest rated show. It uh, wouldn't have been recommissioned if Hillary Clinton had won the election. Absolutely not. Uh, so the fact that it, it was capturing such a massive audience... And the reason I think that Donald Trump actually telephoned Roseanne was because he saw the success of Roseanne as the success of himself. It sort of spoke to the part of him that was really hurting because, you know, he lost the popular vote. And somehow the success of this sitcom that had been marketed as somehow having something to do with his election victory, that spoke to a part of him. And it really stroked his ego in a way that clearly felt very good. And the fact that it was axed. I think, really cut him somewhere where it hurts. And you've got to remember that he's one of the most egotistical, juvenile people that's ever walked the face of the planet. So I don't think it's possible to overstate just how childishly terrible he must be feeling right now. Uh, Daphne, ABC in canning Roseanne and sacking Roseanne Barr, I think it's clear, acted out of a mixture of... I, 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 sus I suspect their outrage at what she'd said and done was fairly genuine, though, as many people pointed out, it wasn't the first time she'd said something of the sort. Uh, but it's also, I'm sure, certainly the case that ABC had either been contacted by the show's sponsors or were aware that that was what was coming next and decided to act. So is this the kind of thing in which we should be more trusting of, I guess, the viewers and sponsors to work out for themselves what is acceptable and what isn't? I don't think it should be down just to the viewers and the sponsors. I, sh I think it also should be down to governing bodies uh, and the networks themselves to sort of, um, if you will, sanction or, or kind of fine uh, people who are misstepping. And I think it's interesting um, to consider football as an example. You know, footballers are incredibly influential uh, people, role models, especially for children. And um, around five years ago, around, you know, actually before that, I think in 2012, the FA here in the UK issued a code of uh, conduct to uh, play and they clarified within that uh, specific rules of conduct for social media. Uh, and, you know, there was a, a case, I think, with Rio Ferdinand where he made some Twitter comments and he was fined £45,000, um, yeah, around that amount, if I recall. Um, so I think there is a point to be had about, made about not just um, governing or, you know, regulating what people say on air, but also the behaviour of actors, um, you know, off air as well, especially when it comes to people who clearly are role models and have, they do have a responsibility towards other people and their fans. I think we all have this. Uh, we all like to at least think uh, that we share this idea of, of what we know is right and what's wrong. And I, uh, maybe before the election, we felt as though we shared that a little more than we do now. And I, I do think that the, the cancellation of Roseanne, uh, the sitcom, ha has 
it, it's restored some of that idea of of us having unity on what is acceptable and what's not. And I think that has got to be a, a positive step. But there's also the, the other side of this is that, you know, this is commercial television and commercial television is about business. You know, it's 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 a it's a corporation. Now, people have a shared value that racism is generally not acceptable. So I don't think it's surprising at all that a network would want to cancel something like this because Roseanne, the person, decided it was her own conscious decision to make racism one of her values. And she started using that. She's used it before as well. She's Many she's, times. She's been racist on her Twitter feed before. So this wasn't the first time. There was always going to be that, that sticky question as to how the network would handle someone who they knew from the outset was a loose cannon. They, at the, the very mildest, they knew that she was uncontrollable. She was uncontrollable when she was on TV the first time. You know, she's only got crazier over the years. So this was always going to be a question that they grappled with. But I don't think it's surprising that a big network would want to make a very clear statement that actually racism is not something that we stand for. And, well, good on them for, for doing that. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Ben Ryland, Daphne Carnesis and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. More after a very short break. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Ben Ryland, Daphne Carnesis and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Later this month, Saudi Arabia will lift its long-standing ban on women driving cars just in time for the 132nd anniversary of the first Benz Motorwagen. By way of commemoration, Vogue Arabia has splashed on the cover of its latest issue a photo of Saudi princess Haifa bint Abdullah al-Saad, daughter of the late King Abdullah, sitting in the driver's seat of a scarlet Mercedes-Benz convertible. This bold statement has, however, not been unanimously welcomed by women's rights activists in Saudi Arabia who observe reasonably that a dozen or so of their number have been arrested in recent weeks. Um, Daphne, if this does look tone deaf, and I guess it does in that context, it's possibly not entirely Vogue Arabia's fault, depending on what their lead times will have been like. Um, But how jarring is it? I mean, on the I was thinking about this, and I mean, on the one hand, it's groundbreaking in the sense that a female royal was photographed like that, and the royal family is clearly sending the message that you know they're modernising and they're you know involving members of, the, of their family more. Uh, you know, in in the Spring Weekly here at Monocle, we we interviewed uh, in in the first issue another Saudi princess who's on the board of the first uh, Saudi Fashion Week. Um, so in a way, with, with reform in Saudi Arabia, it's almost like, you know, you're, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. But on the other hand, definitely, um, 
it's it's really bad that only one activist um, was mentioned, uh, an activist who was involved in overturning the the ban on uh, women driving in in the country. Um, the eleven others still in jail because of this woman's family essentially uh, weren't mentioned. But it's not the first time that Vogue Arabia has been uh, sort of embroiled in controversy. J- just last September, uh, Gigi Hadid, the model, was uh, on on the cover. I mean, she is Palestinian American of descent, uh, but still, you know, people were sort of saying, you know, why wasn't a local model used, for example? Uh, Fernando, it is it is weird, I guess, for anybody covering the real and alleged reforms in Saudi Arabia, because on the one hand, it's obviously to be welcomed if Saudi Arabia is going uh, to pull itself together on a variety of fronts on which it, it has not for a very long time. But on the other hand, you know, how much of a round of applause is any country due for in 2018 saying, yeah, let's let women drive cars? Exactly, Andrew. But that's their strategy in a way. They're dripping those little doses of good news every week, you know. So we, as as the press, we cover them as as we're covering the story in a way. So like, oh hey, we have cinemas, woohoo, yeah. you know. Like, and the last what con- are they gonna say? We have ice cream, you know. Like, they're the last country <laughs> in the world, apparently, to, exactly. to allow women to drive. So I think even the tone of the press, including ourselves, we, it should be more like, wow, it's about time in a way. And I have to say, as a journalistic and producer of the Stackable magazines, it is a beautiful cover, but completely tone deaf in my opinion especially when there's still women being arrested for driving so you know yeah it, it's nice I'm not saying it's good that they're finally welcoming but yeah I, I look at everything that happens in Saudi Arabia with a pinch of salt uh, Ben as I think Daphne has already pointed out it's it's no small statement um, uh, the princess deciding to appear on the cover obviously the, the royal family in Saudi Arabia is enormous but she's a fairly senior figure among it being a daughter of the late king and so far and quoted in the piece as saying I support these changes with great enthusiasm which is fairly uh, unmistakable as a statement of intent but how important is that who is she speaking to when she says that I think she's speaking to the women of of Saudi Arabia and I think it is a it's a really really difficult position because I know uh, look to draw a comparison to a completely different struggle you know uh, same sex marriage when when the struggle was on uh, certainly in Australia which I I was involved in years ago um it's it's difficult because whenever there is something that you want to celebrate some move forward you have that risk because if you do celebrate it you'll have a whole bunch of people on the other side who are saying oh but look at look at all the other terrible things that are still happening and you'll want to say yes i know but we've we made a small step and we want to celebrate that and to celebrate that without uh, referencing the other things that still need to happen, it's very, very difficult. And people can take your celebration as some degree of complacency or, or something. So it's a difficult situation. I do I do feel for the women who, who will be looking at this and feeling as though it is completely tone deaf uh, because I can un- completely understand that situation. But at the same time, if there has been a small step forward, that's better than no step forward whatsoever. And hopefully there will be many, many more step f- steps forward to come in the future. Um, I hope that there is a way to celebrate this particular cover and the, the steps forward that we've had in the recent past without losing sight of the absolutely mountainous steps that still need to be taken.
Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, fans of Australian soap operas have this week been mourning Cornelia Francis, who died this week aged 77. She appeared in several long-running Australian serials, including The Young Doctors, Sons and Daughters, and most famously, Home and Away, in which she played the ghastly Morag Bellingham. Her passing has inspired our panel to choose their favourite soap villains. Uh, ben, I'll start with you, because you, you did a, a illustrated monologue earlier this week, uh, mourning the passing of uh, Cornelia Francis and reflecting on the, the female soap villainess in general. Um, you, you've picked one. Who is the one you have picked? <laughs> the one I have picked... I mean, it has to be more rag, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> Cornelia Francis, let's just explain to our listeners. Cornelia Francis is most famous for playing... Well, actually, it probably depends on which generation you're from because her first her first ever role on Australian television was of uh, Sister Grace Scott uh, on The Young Doctors. That was in the 1970s, and she was very, very nasty back then. Then she played another character whose name escapes me, but I wasn't, I wasn't born yet, to be fair, uh, on Sons and Daughters, which was a, a, an evening soap opera uh, that uh, ran for many, many years. And she was nasty in that, but not, not as nasty as she had been. And then after that, from the 1980s up until just, I think, last year, maybe the year before, she was Morag Bellingham on Home and Away, which a lot of people will know. It is, of course, the uh, one of the two longest-running soap operas on Australian television watched all over the world. And as Morag, she was at her absolute nastiest. When she came back after a long absence, you know, she was very nasty in the 80s. She came back towards the late 90s, and she was humanised a little bit, but she always maintained that very nasty edge. But, Andrew, if it's OK, I would like to play Please do. An, a, a clip, because I think it's important that we get... An illustration as to just how nasty she could be. So, so here, here is Morag Bellingham in a confrontation with her ever-suffering sister, Celia. Well? <laughs> oh, good God, what do you think you look like? Damn Edna Everidge on a bad day or a tea cosy. <laughs> I might have known you'd fire off some spiteful remark. Can't help yourself, Morag, can you? Not when you give me such good ammunition, no. <laughs> A little of the green-eyed monster, if you ask me. Me? Jealous of you, Miss Summer Bay Spinster? Oh, for heaven's sake, Celia, grow up. How dare you be so thoroughly rude. I never make nasty remarks to you. Well, I don't happen to wear the Queen Mother's cast-offs. And as for your coiffure, you'll be quite within your rights to sue the hairdresser for damages. I'll even act on your behalf, if you like. <laughs> you can make money with that look. Hire yourself out to the church for a floral arrangement. <laughs> there's, 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 there's no call for that sort of talk. No. Oh, absolutely. Doesn't there's always she have any allies, Ben? Is she sort of no no friends, not even with her sister? <laughs> not with her sister, definitely not. No, Alf Stewart is is her brother. That's her connection to Summer Bay. Uh, so she does have an ally there. But uh, look, she always she always had this way of, of being humanised as well. And that is because Cornelia Francis was such an immensely talented actress, even though she was always given these particularly nasty roles. But I do have one more very, very small clip that I'd like to play for you as well. This is uh, this is uh, when she had a, a confrontation with a blind man that was living with her. His name was Nigel. Uh, now, uh, this was a, a, quite a confrontation that they'd had the night earlier. Nigel had uh, had clocked on to a bit of a plan that she had, and uh, they had a, a bit of a, a bit of a tussle. And then the next morning, Nigel, the blind man, woke up and uh, came downstairs to discover that his furniture had been re rearranged. Good morning, Morag. Morag? Some idiot shifted the chair. Ow! 
Morag, this is childish. Morag? Morag, what have you done to the roof? Morag, I know you're there. Morag, have you gone mad? Morag! There's no need to overact. Um, <laughs> Fernando, we, you have chosen a, a favourite soap villain. Is, is it one of those famously staid and stoical characters from the understated telenovelas of your homeland? Of course, of course. And I decided to choose a remix, and I'll explain that. Her, her name was Bia Falcão. She was a billionaire founder of a lingerie company called Bellissima. She was, was also a crazy person who used to kidnap her own great-granddaughter. Yeah, because she was around in her early 80s. And she does have a love for champagne and toys boys as well and <laughs> let's hear a clip of this remix and i'll explain exactly what she's saying let's hear it Uh, what the hell was that? <laughs> She's saying some, one of her most famous words, which is like poverty catches like virus, like scabies. So basically because she went to pretend that she was nice to like a poor lady. So she said, oh, I do love your your tea and, and, and boring biscuits. But then she was like, oh, my God, let me disinfect from this poverty. <laughs> She likes champagne, you know. And Daphne, very briskly, your choice. Yeah, I think I win. I've gone with Cruella Deville, the Disney villain. Um, I think I'm not. I'm not going to open the the box of Greek soap operas because it's too complex. So I kind of went back to my childhood, and you know who who is scarier than a lady in a big fur coat who kidnaps puppies? <laughs> For heaven's sakes, where are they? Who, Cruella? I don't. The puppies. The puppies. <laughs> No time for games. Where are the little brutes? Oh, it'll be at least three weeks. No rushing these things, you know. <laughs> Anita, you're such a wit. By far the most plausible of the three characters we just heard from. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Ben Ryland, Daphne Carnesis, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you for joining us. The show was produced by Fernando, researched by Mariana Lagrasta, and our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's The Menu with Marcus Hippie. More on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. I'll be your host for that as well. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. 